I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Dave Laird. And I'm Tim Grunland. Prepare to have your titties pinched by the great concavity. <laughs> awesome. Oh. Yes, that 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 did catch me off guard, Tim. That's that's awesome. Yeah, it's it's a little risque, but I figure if people have read the Pale King, you know, that's that's what we're going to talk about. They'll they'll get it. Very thematic. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, it's either that or have your shoes squeezed. He's always talking about yeah. squeezing my shoes. Yeah, that. I wrote down a few of them earlier, and I thought, nah, titty pinching is a little bit funnier, maybe. So um, <laughs> something about turd nagels, maybe. Yes, <laughs> that would have been Just good. Actually, go yeah. for it. Yeah. Um, Lee Constantino would have been would have got a smile out of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so our guest today, obviously Tim Greenland, who is joining us on the call today from Dublin. Are you in Dublin, Tim? I am in Dublin. Yes, I'm in my apartment in Dublin. He is joining us on the phone from Dublin. So this is our our first uh, international guest. Although, Except for me, I, I'm an international guest every week. Well, <laughs> that, that doesn't really count in the future where we're all one organization of North American nations. Yeah, yeah own in, of course. <laughs> well, yeah. first transit, transatlantic, maybe. Yeah. I guess everyone's everyone is a foreign country if you're in the right perspective. Yeah. Tim, welcome to the show, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. You and Matt met each other a couple years ago at the first Wallace Conference in Illinois. Yeah. Yeah, we cool. had a brief chat um, there. It was a nice. pretty intense day. It was all one day the first year, so it was quite intense yeah, that year. Right. So I had lots of short conversations. Um, <laughs> I didn't really get to get to know a lot of people as well as I would have liked to. But um, Right, yeah. And then in contrast to that, you and I met in Paris at the Infinite Wallace Conference last year in September. And, uh, and that was, what, three days, and everyone got to hear everyone's talk all in one room and there was like insane delicacies of of champagne and food and mm. evenings out and all kinds of things like that so oh that was that was leisurely yeah it was, it was know, very... strolling around the uh, the paris sunshine yeah uh, it's very decadent yeah <laughs> <laughs> cool so we got a chance to hang out quite a bit over those few days and and uh and talk wallace so we thought you would be a fantastic uh, addition to the the concavity roster. So right. thanks for coming on. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> now, Tim, at that first conference, can you remind us what your paper was on that you presented there in 2014? Was it on the Pale King? Um, yeah, yeah, it was on the Pale King. I can't really remember the title, but mm. the, <laughs> I can remember the the gist of it. Um, which has uh, sort of been a main thread throughout my PhD that I just submitted a couple of months ago. And it was on the editing of The Pale King. So I'm really interested in how The Pale King came together mm-hmm. and the idea of The Pale King as a posthumous work that is kind of an editorial construct at the same time as being Wallace's last work, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think I was showing some of the um, archival material because I had been to Austin the year before and spent about 10 days uh, going through the the Pale King archive and um, you know tracing, f- you know following the threads and, and so on. Mm. Let me let me put out a plug right here to anyone who's thinking about coming to Austin and visiting the archives. Is that I will be disappointed if you don't reach out to me to at least meet up and have a beer while you're here. 
So Tim, you got to come back is what I'm saying. Yeah. Come back to the archive. Bring some yeah. Irish stout with you. Maybe, maybe they will get new papers. You never know what, you know, maybe they'll get a new edition and you'll have to come and check that out so we, we can come back. Yeah, they seem to, you know, they seem to acquire a lot of stuff there. So I'm sure I can find an excuse. Yeah. Um, I could have done, I could have done with a, a drinking buddy after those kind of eight or nine hour sessions. Just yeah, I bet. It's, <laughs> in it gets one quite room, intense. Right? Yeah, it gets quite intense because you have this panic of, you know, you've only got a few days in there and there's this amazing wealth of yeah. um, boxes and Material. boxes, you know. Yeah, f- I mean. Yeah, it's like choice fatigue. Like, where do I start? How do I navigate through all this stuff? Yeah, I mean, there's like 40 something boxes, I think, of of manuscripts there and then all the books mm. and the little brown papers. And Are they still in the original duffel bags? <laughs> okay. No. Yeah, I know, I'm just kidding. The, the thing about it, too, is in when the ar- archive first opened in 2010, 2011, you couldn't take photos. Yeah, right. So so now, luckily, they allow you to take photos of pages for personal use, which mm. that to me seems like a mission. If you have a limited amount of time, you're just in there photographing almost everything you can, in my experience. Yeah, yeah. and that's more important than actually like sitting down with the documents and doing deep research. Because you just because you can do that later if you're photographing it. Yeah, no, I was just snapping away once I realized that was possible. Um, I mean, I would have I would have yeah. probably just gone into meltdown if I hadn't <laughs> been able to do that, you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I came home. I had thousands of <laughs> JPEGs that I'm just slowly going through. Oh my gosh. Um, and it's only then you start to really realize what's what's important or what's what's relevant to what you want to talk about, you know. Right. Yeah. So your paper at the Paris conference last year, I remember the title because I thought it was really clever. It's called The Death of the Auteur. Oh, yeah. As in like the, the filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what was the Tell us a bit about a little snapshot of that talk. So you're talking about James Incandenza's films, The Auteur. Yeah, it was about Wallace's sort of engagement with um, mainly with Roland Barthes, but also yeah. the, with French deconstructionism in general. Mm-hmm. And with the whole idea of the death of the author, which was such a big deal throughout, you know, the 70s and 80s, really. Yeah. And this idea, I think you see this idea coming back in in Infinite Jest, and there are kind of really interesting ways that that links back to some essays that Wallace wrote beforehand. And I think I was using some archival material there as well. The cinema book is, is really uh, one of the most interesting things in the archive, I think. You can really see that he used this for um, for film research for, for Infinite Jest. Hmm. And uh, there are you know, passages in there that are just full of underlinings and, and comments about, um, about, uh, about deconstructionism and about French New Wave cinema and all that kind of thing. So... <laughs> Yeah. But you, your PhD, though, is partly about Raymond Carver and Gordon Lish, too. Is that correct? Yeah, it's kind of it's it's half and half, really. It's basically taking two situations where are two editor author relationships that for different reasons are, are very interesting. And they're totally different. I mean, you know, Carver and Lish is a totally different relationship to Wallace and Michael Peach. But Still some similarities, though, right? Some similarities, I think. Yeah, in some ways, yeah, because you just see the really interesting role that an editor, that a commercial editor has to play, which is loads of roles, really. You know, it's acquiring a writer, you know, having this really intense, often pretty personal relationship with them, uh, and then figuring out how to market their writing and how to actually Mm. present that as a thing in the world. 
um, and trying to navigate between those two things. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Well, I, I remember that you and I emailed after the conference a little bit about this very topic because uh, I am also very interested in, especially the way the Pale King was constructed sort of after the fact. I think it's a unique case study, unlike Lish and Carver, where Carver died in 1988, and 10 years after his death was a piece in the New York Times Magazine, a cover story about their relationship written by none other than D.T. Max. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that that's really how D.T. Max ended up as Wallace's biographer because the piece that he wrote for The New Yorker in 2009 was about this issue as well. It was about how he went to retrieve you know, Wallace's papers after his death and started building The Pale King, which had not come out yet. And it was I remember when that piece came out in The New Yorker, it was a revelation to me that Wallace even had a coherent project uh, you know, underway or even that could be re- reconstructed in a way. What, what was your take on that when that piece first came out? Do you remember reading it? Um, I don't, I remember, I, I think my supervisor kind of pointed me towards this and said, you know, this, that the Pale King, that there was this really interesting editorial story behind it. And yeah, I was amazed when I found out how much, I suppose just the introduction to the Pale King, even when I read that, it's it's pretty amazing to realize that, you know, you're holding this book in your hand, but what, where this actually came from is this really complicated multiple year project mm-hmm. spanning all this different media and, and you know different ideas i mean it's it it might be several different mini projects in a way the pale king it, it kind of mutated as it went along mm-hmm. um the long thing the long thing yeah yeah and it's you know it's a long thing but it's also lots of little things in a way i mean i <laughs> yeah went to a conference in um july in bristol called the short things and it was all about the short fiction mm. uh but i i i went uh, i spoke a little bit about the pale king and i was a bit you know kind of worried that people wouldn't wouldn't accept this idea that the pale king is you know in some ways a lot of different short stories but actually a couple of other people there were making the same point mm. um and i i found it interesting to start looking at it that way you know it's a it's a book that works as a collection of short stories as well in a way and there all of the different sections of it are so strangely self-contained yeah uh, and when you see the trouble that peach had connecting the bits to one another when you compare it to something like infinite jest which is just so interconnected and so you know there are all these lines going back and forth between different chapters and yeah. characters that are carefully referenced you know two or three hundred pages after you met them like the Sarpinski gasket model. Yeah, yeah. But now that you have read the the finished piece, you know that, or the finished book that Peach built from all those little pieces, and there are a lot of pieces in the Ransom Center, and a lot of them are drafts, but some didn't make it in, and he put those four in the paperback, the scenes at the end. What's your impression of the whole book, or or what was made out of all of that raw material? What's what's your general takeaway from that that project ah a general takeaway um <laughs> no writing scholarship you, you get used to explaining yourself at great length and it's very hard to be concise um <laughs> my general takeaway was uh, i guess just how much of an editorial job this was and how much of a how much this is just one version of the pale king you know um 
Yeah. And Peach kind of acknowledges that himself in the introduction. But I think that gets lost a little bit in translation to the actual readers and critics, you know. Um, there's something about the kind of the architecture of the book and the way a book is presented and the way a book comes to you as this beautiful finished object that sort of tricks your mind into mm-hmm. thinking that you're reading a finished book, even if you know you're not, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, it was really only when I looked at the archives that I realized how much of a, a mess, in a way, this this stuff is. I mean, it's um, hmm. a lot of the stuff that made it into The Pale King is so unfinished, and you don't really get that from reading the book because the book doesn't distinguish between you know stuff that was in its fifth or sixth draft and stuff that was just in the in first draft mm, yeah um and that's i think something that's a bit confusing i mean i would love to see a scholarly kind of edition of the pale king that really is a lot is a lot bigger and has a lot more it makes it a lot clearer what stages of work these drafts were from and when they were written because you know he was working on this from i mean at least 1997 maybe before that but he was certainly working on it pretty intensely in 1997. So it's a good decade worth of material there. It's a good decade of work, yeah. And he clearly changed yeah. his thinking about it pretty radically at certain points. You know, it was supposed mm-hmm. to be this novel about, about porn. And, you know, there are all these character names that keep changing. There are some bits that didn't make it into The Pale King that are clearly from, you know, 97, 98, 99. And he just put them aside and it's, it seems like he just, abandoned them or, or, or didn't really look at them again so um it's a really weird hybrid book that we have i think yeah i mean i'm really you know i'm really glad we have it it's a it's an amazing editorial job peach did in a way and it's it's a really it's a really powerful piece of work that he created but i think you don't necessarily i think a lot of readers don't immediately get how how much of an editorial construct it is you know right yeah and for me, I wasn't really aware of that until I saw that document in the Pale King that is the full inventory of Peach's discovery, you know, the stuff that he took home with him on the plane that trip yeah, and then brought back. And then they created an inventory and they numbered every piece. And I think there's like 350 pieces in there. Yeah. And 350 sections in the final novel. But a lot of those were different drafts, and a lot of them were obviously drafts of stuff that ended up in either oblivion or in brief interviews. So to, to me, there was a, it was a huge task to take 350 pieces of fiction and try to make a coherent novel out of that. So, I mean, in my opinion, he succeeded at that. But you're right in that there was some decisions he had to make of saying, I couldn't figure out where to slot this in, so we left it out. And the book was getting pretty long anyways. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And didn't he say, he says at some point that he wanted to have like an electronic edition where you could sort of shift things around, but technically they couldn't figure out how to do that, so they mm. scrapped it. Do you remember this? <laughs> Choose your own adventure, Belkin. Yeah. Yeah, he says that in, in an interview somewhere. And um, yeah, it's a really, it's a fascinating idea, you know, I hope, I mean, I hope that can still happen sometime because, I mean, you know, if you go onto the, the, the Ransom Center website, they have the chapter nine, um, the kind of author here chapter hmm. in five or six drafts. And you can, you can start from the uh, handwritten draft and go through, click through to the um, 
to the to the final draft to the final printed draft and you can see it as it develops and look at this sort of genetic you know read it genetically and it would be amazing to be able to do that with other pieces it would be a huge job but i mean that's um so they've already you know experimented with that a little bit yeah i i think that part of it is really valuable because like you say you get to see the evolution of it from this i i think his original idea like you said was related to this porn novel he had written a porn essay that never got published and i think got scrapped and a lot of it got turned into Big Red Sun. Well, no, yes and no, but some of it got turned into this character. Drinian earlier on was a porn star, and that's where the character or the name Sir John Feelgood comes from. And then at some point, he uses that as a justification for how he Drinian became a tax examiner after being a porn star. Is that your read on that section? Yeah, I think that's right. I think uh, I think DT Max talks about this a, a, a bit as well, right? And I think that's um, yeah, that's more or less his his description of it. I mean, I, I don't know. It's hard to uh, I, I can't say that I it it was clear to me exactly when or how he makes these decisions to abandon certain ideas, but you can sometimes see in the notebooks that he's trying out a new title. It was called Glitter for a while. It was called Net of Gems. What is Peoria for? Peoria, whatever. Yeah. What is Peoria for? Yeah. Yeah. So, he, I mean, it seems to me like I mean, one of the really interesting things about that spreadsheet is that you can see a lot of the dates of when things were written because a lot of it is on um, from a desktop or from, from floppy disks, um, which is pretty amazing, you know, because floppy disks were probably well on the way to being obsolete by the time, you know, <laughs> In, during the time that Wallace was working on the novel, but yeah. you can see the dates that, um, that that things were saved. So you can see that how he worked on it, which I think were these intense bursts of, you know, maybe three or four months at a time of work, and then he would leave it for a while and go and do something else. So, you know, that's, I think, part of how, why it feels so fragmented and why he hadn't joined the dots himself yet. Well, and you can sort of see he feels this pressure to do something original or unique structure-wise, not just, you know, writing in a new mode or voice or subject matter, but also structure-wise. And I have just the other day listened to this audiobook of Both Flesh and Not, which includes The Empty Plenum, his essay on David Markson. And in there, he talks a lot about the structure of the novel and how it has this sort of circular structure. And I think that he also mentions in several notes of Pell King, he wanted to have like a tornadic structure. And do you think that's part of what, you know, Michael Peach, his core problem is just how to structure all these different voices or how to, you know, what, what do you think he was hoping to accomplish with the structure of that book? Yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, he was trying to accomplish something that he was trying to find a structure for something that the author hadn't himself really figured out. I mean, yeah, I think he was trying to do something like, I mean, the intro, he says that he was trying to, that he used Infinite Chest as a, as a guide. Hmm. So, yeah, it probably would have ended up, um, you know, there is this sort of collage-like way in which Wallace worked. I mean, he didn't really, you don't really get plots followed fluidly or linearly through you get them you get this deliberately fragmented structure 
in Infinite Jest too. So mm-hmm. I think that's what Peach was going for. Whether it would have been in the order that things are in 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 the Pale King, I don't know. I mean, obviously, it, it makes sense chronologically to start out with the with the childhood stories, and then have everybody slowly converging mm-hmm. on on Peoria. But you know, who knows? They might have been uh, that they might have been flashbacks, or they might have been um, they might have been jumbled up a lot more. It's 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 impossible to say, you know. Yeah. So that raises that that raises the issue of what are kind of the ethics behind posthumous editing, and you you sort of explored this in your research as well. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I I, I got interested in you know other posthumous novels and and how they're presented, and you know there's such a range of ways in which that can happen. Um, I looked at uh, you know Hemingway's posthumous novels, which uh, in a way they're they're much more blatant examples of an editor kind of changing, leaving out the stuff he doesn't want to make it a more commercially mm. palatable novel. Mm. Um, the ethics, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's in a way, it, it's inevitable that these novels are going to appear. And yeah. in a way, it's a kind of an aesthetic judgment. You know, what, does this novel add anything to the body of work? Is it Was it worth publishing? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think The Pale King definitely was. Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, but, you know, when you get into the question of would Wallace have wanted, you know, half finished drafts to be published, then it's it's a lot more difficult. You know, what exactly <laughs> would he have? How far did he think? You know, how far into this did he think? Because, you know, the interesting thing about the archive as well, Matt, I'm, I'm sure you, you saw this as well, is that there's no impression from the archive that Wallace really arranged this stuff himself or that, mm-hmm. you know, for such a self-conscious writer, for someone who is so thought so hard about how he presented himself to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, you don't get the impression that he was arranging his papers for the future scholar or the future <laughs> reader, you know? No, the only sense of that was that, you know, in the DT Max reports that they found, you know, on on his desk, a stack of clean manuscript. And so the question for a lot of people was like, well, what's in that clean stack? Was it really everything that ended up in the book? And it's hard to say because a lot of that stuff, what was on top, we know was that section nine, that author here. And yeah. so Pete, Peach originally thought, well, that's going to be the opener because it's on the top of the stack. And then he says later on, oh, no, it should be the ninth section based on this one comment, which I'm still not convinced that that's true not or, or not either. Um, yeah. So you get you get things that were very polished and left out. So there's a section, all that, that they published in the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. That's clearly it was polished enough to go through the New Yorker. And Peach said later he couldn't just figure out which child the character corresponded to later. Yeah, which I think implies that he did figure out who a lot of these other children, you know, who are not named, are supposed to be, which is uh, in its own right a daunting task that. Again, I don't think it's been really explored in depth. Yeah, I mean, some of those decisions were um, were pretty subjective, you know. Um, I mean, one thing I did during this was to look at the uh, the audio book as well, because at some point I noticed that the audio book has some slight differences from the published version, print edition, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, um, and I, I, 
when I started to actually sit down and compare the two and I ended up doing this, you know, very laborious comparison of the whole book. But uh, but there are actually loads of differences and, you know, all these little minor differences um, that eventually, you know, I, I, I contacted Little Brown and they, they confirmed that they had, uh, that the audio recording had taken place before they had done the final round of editing. So it's, you know, it's mostly oh. the same. It's all, everything's in the same order. It's all there, but there are a lot of little minor differences and changes of character names. And even there, you see uh, Pete changing character names at the last minute. Mm. So there's one character where, um, let me see, Drinian, uh, at one point, his name is, um, one character's name is changed from Drinian because probably Peach decided that it just was clearly not the other Drinian that we see in the much longer chapter. Um, mm. And in another chapter, they put in Tony Ware's name to make it clear that it's her and you know you'd imagine it is her but they they made that decision to I guess make it to knit things together a little bit more for the reader hmm. so there are lots of little places where you know small details have been changed um Fogel was another one the character Shin um was I'm thinking of the final Fogel chapter very late in the book where he's waiting to go into this interview uh with the with the two kind of aides and uh that character was called Shin until the last minute uh, and then Peach sort of realized okay this must be this must be Fogel mm. so yeah that was um you know I think I mean all the decisions he made make generally make sense to me but there you are you know they're 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 not easy decisions all the time you know it's really not clear whether Wallace came to final decisions about this stuff himself and there's a note that refers to a third David Wallace that doesn't really that that is kind of mysterious as well mm. so um yeah so there's um there yeah it's it was a complex job and mm. it's you know a different editor could arrive at slightly different decisions you know mm-hmm. did you get a chance to interview or talk to Michael Peach uh in the in the process of your research I haven't. I would like mm. to, um, but he well, he's a CEO now, so he's <laughs> so pretty. He's, been uh, busy. <laughs> he's got quite a lot of demands on his time. I think, yeah, yeah and yeah. he's he's been busy, you know, battling with Amazon and and, and various things. <laughs> so, um, so no, I haven't. But uh, yeah, hopefully I will at some point. It would be great if I could, if I could get him to. Uh, no, I, I was just looking at his various interviews. I mean, he he gave a lot of interviews about the Pale King, and there's a lot of a lot of interesting stuff online different symposiums and yeah he came to the ransom center and i think it was 2011 or 2012 for a symposium when the pale king was released and i think that that video is still online and yeah it was it was great to just have him around though because you could you know go up to him and just ask random questions like hey what did you do with that section (laughs) yeah (laughs) uh and uh, you know kind of off the record stuff but uh, one thing i was really taken with watching him at one point, he interviewed some other people in the symposium, and the guy is just an incredible interviewer as well, which I, I thought spoke well to his abilities as an editor to be able to you know, communicate with authors and, and ask them the right questions and have this really sense of ease and comfort around you know, other people's writing is, uh, is really phenomenal to watch in action because some editors are pretty, pretty quiet and closed off, but he's not at all. Mm, yeah, he does. He comes across as very, very personable. I mean, the I looked a little bit at the 
correspondence for Infinite Jest as well, and you know the the editing job he did on that is very impressive in lots of different ways. You know because you can see at some point, I mean he starts off arguing with Wallace about the length and sort of saying, well I don't want this to be a thirty dollar book and I don't want it to be you know thirteen hundred pages and <laughs> and that's pretty much what it ended up being. You know he at some point he obviously stepped back a little bit and accepted, well, this is what, what this book is. And he somehow turned that into a selling point, which, you know, he's he's very obviously a guy who can handle the commercial side of things mm. and speak to the commercial people as well as to the authors. And I, I, I guess that's a pretty rare combination. Mm. Yeah. Uh, maybe someday we'll see a biography of Michael Peach. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> By DT Max. <laughs> no. <laughs> so now that you're done with your PhD, you've submitted it at least, do you foresee continuing to work on Wallace or the Pale King or are you exploring new avenues or what sort of stage are you at right now? Uh, I'm in this kind of limbo stage post PhD. I'm, there is a, a period of a month or two after the PhD where your head is just kind of melted, <laughs> melted into nothing and it's very hard to really think about anything else. So I'm just emerging from that and starting to think about what I'm going to do next. So I will definitely look at trying to, uh, you know, look at, at options for publishing some of this work and, and see see if I can develop it. I mean, I'm still really interested in, in Wallace and in The Pale King, and I have so much kind of fascinating material that I, that I you know, lots of which I, I couldn't even really look at because you just have to make decisions about uh, deadlines uh, and things. So, yeah, totally. So, yeah, I'd love to keep going with this. Yeah. I've just been really impressed at the number of scholars in Dublin, especially at Trinity College, who have worked on Wallace or have led uh, reading groups on Infinite Jest. And I, you know, I know there was a Bologna group there for a while. Like there is a lot of interesting things in contemporary lit going on there. Can you explain to us a little bit about like what that scene has been like for you the past few years? Yeah, I guess I've been, I've been going to a lot of conferences and, and meeting a lot of the same people. So, um, so yeah, it's been, it's been really exciting. Um, Probably some of that is down to my my supervisor Philip Coleman was uh, one of the people to pretty early on teach a course on David Foster Wallace. So anybody you know, most people in Ireland who would want to study Wallace have ended up gravitating towards him. You know, um, I know Claire Hayes Brady did her PhD with him a few years before before I did, and um, she's going to have a book on Wallace next year. Right, Adam um, Kelly. Adam Kelly, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, he's in York now. I actually knew Adam in school and sort of lost track of him for a while, and then we we bumped into each other again and ended up, you know, both both working on Wallace. And you know, he'll. Uh, I'm not sure where his book is at, but he's definitely going to write more about Wallace. This is like high school. You guys um, went to high school together. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I remember that? Yeah, we were in English <laughs> class together, so it was kind of strange to. Uh, yeah. To come across each other again and yeah, no go to David Foster Wallace conferences. <laughs> it's like a very specific interest area that you both seem to have found and like got really exactly, into. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, very, yeah, very, very strange. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ireland's a small place and sometimes that, that, that really, <laughs> sometimes you've c- come across people in very specific ways, yeah. Mm-hmm. Philip Coleman, he was the editor of that big Critical Insights book. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, I came out earlier this year. Did you, Did you have an essay in there? Yeah, I had an essay in there on um, on the Pale King and on well, a lot of the, the stuff I was just um, talking about. Yeah, the different versions of the Pale King and the different sort of um, differences with the audiobook and the fact that 
you know, I guess there are already three or four different versions out there when you, you mentioned the, you know, unpublished scenes in the paperback and just about how how when we talk about the Pale King, we're talking about something that is um, already this multiple entity, I guess. Mm. Yeah, Philip writes a lot about Markson as well, and he and I have talked a lot about David Markson, and he wrote a long thing about Wallace's appreciation of, of Markson. So it seems like there is a lot of overlap in some of these, you know, the, the interest of what's going on in academia right now. But I wanted to ask you if there's like other kind of exciting new authors or avenues of things that, you know, you've come across in the past year or two that you would, you know, recommend to us that see people seem to have started working on. Huh. Okay. <laughs> I'm sort of just mentally replaying, you know, conference presentations and things in my head. So uh, I don't know. In a way, you kind of go into this bubble when you're doing a PhD of just only reading very specific things. Mm-hmm. So I haven't had a... You know, I've just spent the past couple of months catching up on writers that I've been meaning to read for the past year or two. I mean, I read um, I read a few of Joshua Cohen's books. I read Book of Numbers and really thought that this is, you know, he's definitely an author in the Wallace mold in a way. Mm. Right. Um, just, you know, the, the maximalism thing, the kind of, he's almost like a, you know, 10 years younger Jewish version of Wallace in a way, <laughs> you know, he's, um, yeah, he, I, there's a character named Joshua Cohen in there, right? There's several Joshua Cohen's in the book, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. Joshua Cohen writing a biography of Joshua Cohen, who is, you know, a, a kind of, um, tech founder guy who, a sort of Steve Jobs type right. character. Mm-hmm. Um, what about and, Paul uh, Murray? Have you read, uh, Skippy dies or any of the yeah, I love Skippy Dies. I have um, I have his new one, The Mark and the Void, sitting uh, on top of my pile of books. It's going to be the next one I read over Christmas. But, hey, um, I'm a mind reader. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's definitely, uh, when I read Skippy Dies, I definitely thought, okay, I can see see some of like an infinite jest influence here. Hmm. Um, yeah, I love that book. It's, it's, it's great. It really captured a lot of, um, I don't know, Irish school experience. And, um, yeah. <laughs> Really and I felt like that. Well, like if you went to a private tennis academy, you might feel that way about Infinite Jest, and that's <laughs> sort of like the Irish boys' school version of yeah. e- ETA. There, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I, I like the sense of humor as well. He has it's a very kind of offbeat, uh, slightly absurd sense of humor. Um, so yeah, I, I would definitely recommend that book. Um, yeah, I wish I had read the new book before this, but I can't. I can't say a whole lot about that. Um, Neither could I. I'm just always trying to ask people who I like their taste. I'm always trying to get their recommendations and what they're looking for. So that that's a, a kind of go-to question for me. Mm, yeah. But I, I also wanted to ask you about the academic scene in the UK and, and Ireland in general seems slightly different to me. So I'm I'm definitely interested in, you know, what the procedures are for, you know, people who want to study Wallace. What would you recommend if if there is a young and up and coming scholar? What would you recommend that they do if they're in the UK or Ireland? I'd say, you know, get in touch with with. (laughs) I mean, that's the first thing, you know, one of the first things you should do is, well, I I suppose before that, get some ideas together, but also, you know, start start going to conferences and start finding out who um who can help you you know who who to talk to in person about this mm-hmm. uh the main thing i would do is you know read 
read what's been written so far, which is going to be a bigger job all the time. There's so much academic work oh, yeah. coming out of Wallace. Yeah, it's getting intimidating. Uh, but, you know, because of that, it's kind of prerequisite of academic work that you, you're not you're doing something that no one else has quite done before mm-hmm. and that, you know, in a way can be difficult with Wallace. I mean, there's so much there to write about, but there are already a lot of themes and kind of links there that have been really, you know, well explored. Heavily well explored, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Wallace's relationship to philosophy and mm-hmm. um, and his, you know... Irony. Irony yeah. and sincerity and his relationship to postmodernism and mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um well, is, is that what drew you to the Pale King? Is partly that it had less, less traffic than Infinite Jest? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because it hadn't been, it hadn't really been written about yet, and and because it was just uh, because it had this whole other thing going on, the whole editing thing. I mean, I was already interested in that, as as I mentioned, I was already writing about Carver and Lish, and uh, I really felt like no one, I wasn't aware of anyone quite looking at it from this angle and really following you know what the what the editor had done and looking at comparing it to other unfinished novels and uh, and and this kind of thing how do you rate the writing in it i mean i tell people sometimes that if they haven't read the pale king yet that they should because i think it contains some of wallace's best writing Hmm. specifically the fogel section i think is just you know the highlight of the book for me but you know yeah, that's amazing. What do you say to people who haven't read the book yet or have put it off or think that, you know, it's a minor work or something because it was not really constructed by Wallace? Mm. It's I'd say it's definitely not a minor work, but it is a kind of complicated, messy work, and I can see why that would put people off. Mm. I think, you know, it's a in a way it's a great one to dip in and out of or a great one to just read short sections of you know those childhood stories several of them are just some of the best things that wallace has written i think you know the the tony ware story the the lane dean story you know those are such beautiful self-contained stories that i think are just just exemplary of of Mm. what wallace could do and in, in a lot of ways wallace worked best in short bursts i think you know you think of uh, infinite jest and uh, it's this enormous collage of lots of you know amazing short pieces vignettes kind of uh, yeah vignettes he I mean he was he was a master of the the vignette mm. and occasionally of this you know extended oblivion style story which you know the Fogel chapter is maybe along those lines a little bit mm. so yeah I know I would say dive in I would say if you can you know get hold of a copy or you know dip into it and try it it's um, it's in a way it's easier than Infinite Jest because you don't have that demand of having to kind of flip back and forth <laughs> and try and keep keep the whole thing in your head. I the mean, tennis match. If you can adjust your expectations to the fact that it's not going to be it's not going to be wrapped up and it's not going to yeah. be yeah and in that way it feels Pelking feels postmodern in the sense of like you're you're probably not going to get a really clean ending that's <laughs> like as satisfying as traditional. Uh, traditional earlier novels and to me it almost feels kind of like infinite jest in that way like when you finish infinite jest with the don gately scene you're kind of like what how is this the ending yeah you know and you're like so it feels kind of like incomplete in that sense you don't get like a, a really satisfying spelled out answer of this is this is what happened 
you know, to wrap this stuff all up in a clean way. And the Pale King felt like that to me. And so I felt like that was fine, you know, like, okay, this is what I've come to expect from this kind of fiction and, and from Wallace specifically. So I didn't find the Pale King to be too off-putting in that way and that it was, you know, incomplete or whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, totally. It, it doesn't, uh, you know, it's pretty doubtful whether he would have wrapped things up neatly, Yeah, you know, if he had if he had managed to finish this. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen quite a few scholars argue that, you know, this this was pretty much, you know, this is not that far from the way he wanted it and that mm-hmm. it would have been very fragmented and and, uh, and deliberately sort of jumbled up and jagged, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, it, you know, if he had uh, in, in its kind of hypothetical final right. form. Yeah. How so, long would Pale King be if all the material that was in... Uh, in the office, if it had just gone straight into the book, would it have been okay. double the length? That's a good or... question. No, I don't think so. From what I've okay. seen, no. I think Peach was pretty generous in in terms of deciding what to include. You know, I don't think I don't think there were another five hundred pages yeah. at all. Um, I certainly didn't see anything close to the length of you know the Fogel chapter or the the long the kind of happy hour chapter with mm. um, Drinian and. Mm-hmm. And Meredith Rand. So I think what I saw was mostly other vignettes, often just a page long, mm-hmm. um, sometimes three or four pages. You know, I would say probably all less than less than 10 pages. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it would be dramatically longer. Okay. I mean, may, maybe 50 or 100 pages longer, but that might even be... Hmm. That might, that even might be, be a stretch. Okay, so most of it's there. That might be a stretch. Hmm. I think most of it's there, yeah. That's good to yeah. know. That's the impression I... Yeah. Because yeah. Infinite Jest, what, there's like another four or 500 pages that didn't make it into the final print edition? I, I, I'm I, doubtful about that as well, actually. Oh, are you? Okay. I don't know. I don't know. If I, yeah, again, maybe, Matt, you've maybe you've looked at this a bit as well, but I, I think Wallace exaggerated when he was... Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> when he was talking about... It. I mean, I, I went through a few interviews and looked at what he said about it, and, you know, in one place he said there were 300 pages cut, another place he says 500, so it's just someone uh. else he says 600. So <laughs> he he did exaggerate, you know, he did kind of... He, he did um, he did lay it on a bit thick sometimes in interviews. And, and, <laughs> and I think it's really hard to judge because there's so many different drafts of that book. And, you know, he really did write five separate drafts, like starting at the beginning of the book yeah. all the way to the end. He wrote all of these different drafts of the book. So it's really hard to see where, you know, things got cut, because how do you compare, oh, these 12 pages were handwritten in this draft and these 12 pages were retyped in this draft? Right. And, I mean, the number of pages, it's hard to gauge. I think what a lot of the stuff that was cut from Infinite Jest is not missed by the reader. Like if you saw it, you would be like, uh, why did I just read all of this? Like, I, I think that some of this, and Stephen Moore wrote an essay, you know, comparing the, the draft that he got to the final draft of the book. And you can see a lot of the changes are minor stuff. And even in that final draft, there were still typos and problems. And Stephen Moore says that there are Little Brown will be correcting about 20 different things in the 20th anniversary edition of the book that comes out in February. Oh, yeah. So there, there's still like with a book that long, it's, you know, any writer will tell you that if they had a chance, they would probably polish it and polish it and polish it if given the chance. Uh, so it's never really done. I mean, there would be things if you look back at a chance to help your younger self, would you take it? And Wallace did in between the hardcover and paperback, he 
had his sister copyright uh, copy edit the book. Hmm. And I I know that even then they did they there were still a few things that were continuity errors. There were you know typos and not major stuff, but uh, the the project of editing that book is just massive. So the things that were cut, you know, it's pretty well documented. I know David Herring has done some work on the editing of that book, and it's really interesting. But in the end, I think that you know the it's a question about how books are written. Do you want readers to have the first access to the first draft of every book ever written? <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's just not interesting in a lot of cases. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, I guess it depends on how the writer writes and yeah, I think you're right that the editing of, of infinite jest was, you know, it was like hundreds and hundreds of small cuts rather than any big, rather than any big cuts, you know, I mean, I was, I was half hoping to find, and probably a lot of people have looked in the Infinite Jest manuscripts, hoping to find some, you know, mythical Lost chapters, that, <laughs> you know, that, that ties the whole thing together or something. But, you know, I, I don't think there is such a chapter. I didn't see any sign of any, you know, lengthy chapter that got cut. I, I just saw lots of small, right. you know, ha- half page, couple of pages here, a mm. couple of pages there. A lot of the Marath and Steeply dialogues got sort of con- condensed, <laughs> you know, okay. through. Yeah, I'm okay with that personally. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, one thing that I, I there's a lot of little interesting things in there. Like in an early draft, the professional conversationalist scene where Hal is talking to his father. Yeah. That in that scene, the first draft of it, the character is not called Hal; it's called David Foster Wallace. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and he's talking to his father named James. And in the book, he kept the fa- which is his father's real name. And he kept the father's name as James in the final copy of the book in final edition of the book. And there's a, there's another story that he wrote in the late 1980s. that was never been republished called Other Math. And in that, it's him talking to his grandfather. And I think there are a lot of similarities in, in that story. So, I mean, it's little stuff. Like you say, there's not. Like, oh, here's 500 pages of material. Right. I, I see no evidence of that. There's no, like, wedding scene between Don Gately and Joel <laughs> Van Dyne or anything like that? No, no there's, there's no um, red wedding scene where everyone gets killed off. Yeah. Or, like, an extended scene of Hal and Gately in the graveyard. No. Which is a very cryptic moment early in Infinite Jest and then comes back later. And that's like yeah. kind of a head scratcher part, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, if, except for that's where the title of the book comes from. Yeah, yeah. Poor York. Yeah. In the, digging, in the cemetery. Digging up James's head for the cartridge. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, we're getting close to an hour, Tim. I want to ask you if you have any final thoughts either about the Pale King or about Wallace in general, things that you want to share with our listeners and our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just click up on my notes here. I wrote down a couple of things earlier. Nice. Um, because you were asking me about teaching the Pale King, I taught this uh, I yeah. taught a class on the Pale King last week to um, two undergraduates, and uh, they had some really interesting questions. Cool. Um, they were really interested in the idea of the archive and, you know, the idea of posthumous work. And a lot of them didn't know how posthumous work gets, you know, who owns the work, I guess, mm-hmm. was was a big um, was a big question. Who makes money off it? Um, who makes money off it? Who decides, you know, what can and can't appear? Mm-hmm. Um, but also things like, I mean, a really interesting thing about the archive is that there's a slow transition into emails, right? Um, mm. and a transition to digital 
right. material that. That's what my paper was about at the conference, Tim. Okay, wow. Wall- Wallace's use of email. And yeah. I, I pretty much pinned it down to whenever he was working on the math book. And he had hired an assistant and needed to correspond with this assistant and really just broke down about 2001 and said, okay, I'll start doing email. <laughs> um, okay. But because, you know, there's all these things in Infinite Jest and with Harper's of him faxing in edits, he would. He was the king of the late night voicemail, right? Where he would leave a voicemail, like a 40 minute voicemail, uh, (laughs) you know, with his edits or he would fax in something. But yeah, the transition to email, that's really interesting because we don't really have a lot of that in scholarly archives, you know? Yeah, it's a really, it's a new problem, isn't it? It Uh, is. And it raises the question, like, do you want someone looking through your email 50 years from now? Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a really different thing, isn't it? Not, I mean, it's it's a kind of a worse thing in terms of the quality of, you know, how much interesting stuff you're going to say and at what length you're going to say it. But also, yeah, I mean, email is this space where everything exists at at once. I mean, you've got all you've got your business stuff alongside your <laughs> your your literary uh, right. correspondence, and um, I mean, someone asked in class last week about who owns the emails and whether there's uh, you know some difference there in terms of these are going through a company that these are going through a third party this communication uh, mm. i don't know i meant to sort of well what what they did is print them out though yeah so printing out the emails that sort of negates any commercial yeah aspect to it and it's part of the ransom center's acquisition at that point and what what i found interesting about that is this is, you know, like I say, the core of the thing I, I worked on this year is the Ransom Center has become a sort of pilgrimage place for Wallace fans mm-hmm. that, you know, he doesn't have a grave site like uh, some other famous writers have like a shrine you can go and visit, you know, in the cemetery in Paris. Wallace doesn't have that. And what he has is the Ransom Center. And you can go and hold, you know, a handwritten first draft of Infinite Jest. And for some people, that's like a pilgrimage. Yeah. But when you when you get there, I think it's really bizarre to see a guy at a table holding a printout of an email. Yeah. <laughs> and and, th- and that's some sort of treasured object or important thing. It really, you could, technologically speaking, just put all of that stuff into a text file and have on your desktop and it would be a very small file. Uh, so to me, it's not like going there next door to me, there is someone at the table adjacent to me with, you know, a manuscript from the 1500s that was printed on sheepskin. <laughs> and and it was this giant book, you know, that had survived hundreds of years of transport. Mm-hmm. And to think, you know, is the future of it really us go, traveling across the country to go and look at a manila folder of printed out emails? It's a bizarre question. Yeah, it's very strange. All right. And a lot of these emails are, you know, just kind of one line emails to his research assistant. <laughs> you know, they're not... A lot of the most interesting stuff isn't in the emails uh, as well, um, right? So uh, yeah, it's 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 an interesting question because he was right on that change from analog to digital, and we've sort of you know maybe we've left the manuscript era behind in the twentieth century, you know. Mm. Um, well, well, it's interesting that students are thinking about this because you've got authors who you can interact with on Twitter, and I'm thinking of writers like Margaret Atwood or. Salman Rushdie, you know, who tweet regularly. Well, what are someone going to go back and collect their tweets and study that? (laughs) 
Is, you know, is someone going to go and look at all their emails or will a research institution ask, you know, let's say Jonathan Franzen to start archiving all of his Gmail right now? Shopping lists. I mean, well, it's it's bigger than that, though, because I'm sure that they have a lot of important correspondence in email and a lot of it, it will get lost. Yeah, I'm sure those conversations have, you know, someone must have thought of, you know, <laughs> with someone like Franz, and I'm sure the conversation has taken place at some point. Um, and you've got a lot of living authors who have already, who have their stuff in, in the Ransom Center, for example. So, I mean, all of DeLillo's stuff is there. I don't know if DeLillo uses email. I've no idea <laughs> what... Uh, no, you're right. There's like J.M. Cutsey and T.C. Mm. Boyle and Ian, Ian McEwen. McEwen. Yeah. They're, they're, and I, I honestly don't know. And whenever I, I was looking at this topic with Wallace, I could not find a lot of protocols for librarianship about how to collect living writers correspondence, you know, electronically. Like I, if it's out there, it's it's pretty well um, secret because I couldn't find it in a public way. Mm. Okay. That's so yeah. you're more confident than I am about it because you would think surely this has been figured out, but I, I'm not as sure that it is. There's a standardized way to do it. And it, it raises an interesting problem because Wallace is sort of one of the last, you know, who started his career before the digital era. Yeah. Yeah. And even when he gets computer, even when he starts using computers, he is still sort of using it as a typewriter in the way he's printing out his drafts <laughs> and then correcting them by hand. Yeah. So he's still sort of treating the, the, the computer printout as a typescript. He's not he's not doing all his editing in... He's not leveraging the technology. No. <laughs> well, he says that he did none. He, he literally treated yeah. it like a typewriter, like you're mm. saying. He did no, like, messing around with editing really at all in it. And if he had, we wouldn't have... We wouldn't have a lot of this stuff, you know. They would the archive would look a whole lot smaller. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, no, you're right. Hmm. Are there any future interest areas coming out of the archive that um, that you think are exciting, possible things to explore, Tim? Um, well, I've started seeing a few pieces on um, on the books, on his annotations, and you know, there's there's right. a lot of interesting stuff there to see how, in terms of how Wallace interacted with his own books. I mean, he was a really fierce annotator right i think um and the notebooks as well i mean i haven't seen any anything specifically on the notebooks but uh you know i had never sat and looked at a writer's notebook before and it's pretty <laughs> it's a pretty interesting experience yeah um, does it feel kind of voyeuristic it does a little bit yeah, yeah because i mean you know that this is really the very beginning the germinal stage of of the writing you know yeah. this is not something he really would have ever you know, it's hard to imagine he would have wanted to display his notebooks with right. that are full of, you know, smiley face stickers and <laughs> um, pieces that he's literally cut and pasted out of out of magazines mm-hmm. um, for 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 plot ideas and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. um, but I'm sure there'll be something. Uh, I'm sure there's interesting things to be written about those. Yeah, there's so much in there. I mean, I think we've ju- people are just scratching the surface. Yeah. Like I said, the forty boxes of stuff. I know Stephen Byrne is working on like a a volume of letters. I think. Yeah, um, he presented about that at the yeah, conference okay. in May. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure he'd have some interesting things to say about you know getting hold of people's emails and stuff like that because yeah, um, I'm sure that's that's part of the you know what he needs to deal with is to to talk to people who are still living and might have 
might have been emailing Wallace mm-hmm. uh, or might have emails that Wallace wrote. So yeah, I think because of the way he died, <clears throat> there are a lot of people who don't want to share their personal letters with with mm. anyone, and they yeah. have letters of from Wallace, and they still just consider it too personal and too raw. Yeah, and I, and I think that we're just never going to see some, and I think yeah. some maybe will come out, you know, in decades from now, but. Yeah, I think that's extremely fair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could understand that. It's um, mm-hmm. it is it is so strange for a writer to. It is so unusual for a writer of that stature to to die so young, really. In in you know while he's still producing amazing work, and it's a you know it's a pretty unusual situation from from a kind of archival point of view. I think they're you know to some extent where everybody's figuring it out as they go along. Mm-hmm. So your students, did they did they read the whole book or, or were you teaching sections sort of the way you were saying it's easy to divide up the book? Yeah, they read, actually, well, it was Philip's class and uh, I came in to teach one of these classes and he had them reading the uh, the reader, the, the Wallace reader oh, yeah. that oh, came nice. out last year. Yeah. Uh, because that is pretty much, a, you know, designed to be a teaching document. Yeah, for sure. But what's interesting about that, and I only noticed it when I went in to teach the class, is that the Pale King selections... You don't get Michael Peach's introduction, mm. so mm. actually, you know, if you come to the Pale King through the reader, you don't know any of this essential information mm. of how, yeah, the context, how, how the book came together, yeah. Mm. And I think it's yeah, really an essential document. That introduction it tells you it tells you so much about the problems of uh, of putting all this together. Mm. But Tim, what do you make of the uh, the the Pulitzer Prize decision to not award? Uh, prize in 2012 with Pale King being one of the yeah, finalists. I, I, I think they probably should have given it to him. Yeah, um, <laughs> I know, right? I, That's my thought. I can't remember off the top of my head who were the other. Uh, Karen Russell's Swamplandia uh, and Dennis Johnson's Train Dreams. Okay, yeah. I just have the Wikipedia page. I don't uh, know that. I really like Train Dreams. That's a good book. But it, it was weird qualification because it, it actually was published in a different form earlier. It was published a lot earlier, was, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, in the Paris Review. So it was kind of a weird that it even qualified for 2011 because it was it was not a new book. Yeah. But anyways, that 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 really wrinkled me. I, I was pissed for days when that happened. <laughs> I, I was I was like, you got to be kidding me! The one damn year you're not going to award the prize, just so happens. I mean, because Wallace didn't receive the Pulitzer Prize or the National Book Award in his lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. And here was his one chance to mm-hmm. really get some mainstream acclaim. Yeah. And they gave him, it's like yeah. a technicality or yeah. something. I just couldn't believe it. Yeah, it seems like more and more of an anomaly that, you know, the, every year that goes by and as people appreciate him as as a great writer, that he didn't win a whole lot of literary prizes, really. Or yeah, not. yeah, like none, like basically none. none. But, you know, the, the Genius Award, yeah. but not none for specific uh, right. books, right? Compared to Franzen. <laughs> Compared to Franzen, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never, all right. is kind I, of... I should stop. <laughs> Franzen's kind of the, uh, <laughs> the sort of villain in the background of every Wallace conference you go to, isn't it? There's a sort of un- unspoken... Uh, I know. Unspoken right? resentment to Franzen uh, lurking in the background. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had, some, I've had some funny conversations yeah. at conferences <laughs> about that. I don't know, what, what will we do without Franzen, you know? You need a foil. Yeah, exactly. You need a foil. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so Tim, are you? So have you defended your PhD now? No, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that in uh, January. So you're about to defend. Gearing up. Okay. What does it look like in the UK to defend a PhD? Is it a couple hour thing? Is it longer? It's no. I think it's a an hour, a couple of hours. I'm not sure if there's a strict limit on it. I yeah. need to check that. But I think they're usually an hour yeah. or two. Yeah. So um, yeah. Hopefully, yeah, I can just about handle that. <laughs> yeah, you'll be you'll be fine, man. I think this is good go easier on you than uh, than we have. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we're tough customers. You know, I doubt it, but uh, no, it's it's been a pleasure to. Uh, yeah, I don't often get to talk about the Pale King. It's uh, such such uh, enthusiastic, uh, you know, colleagues. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, my uh, my mother in law just defended her PhD a few months ago, and I went to I went to the defense, and it was three hours, and. Uh, so I got kind of a foretaste of what my master's defense okay, is going right. to look like next year. You, you have a master's yeah. defense, right? Yeah, which will be uh, yeah next next year, like in the next yeah. term probably. So, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Good luck. So getting amped up for that. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she actually just finished reading the Pale King like uh, a week or two ago. My mother-in-law wow. did. So it was interesting to talk to her and get her kind of response to yeah. it. Yeah. Mostly, mostly kind of like okay, so what what happens in the end you know it's kind of the first question yeah <laughs> but but otherwise i think she was pretty satisfied with it well that's good to, it's good to hear yeah yeah for sure yeah. awesome tim um so if people want to check out some of your writing on wallace um or get in touch with you on social media where are some good places they can go to do that uh i'm on twitter so i guess that if i do anything new i'll put it up there <laughs> Um, yeah, there's a site cool. called academia.eu that has, has links to a few pieces as well. Um, sort of right, academic, yeah. so they can just look at your academic name. networking site. And yeah, so, um, yeah. I have links to a few things there. So yeah, that does all great. That would probably do the job. <laughs> awesome, man. And, uh, you've, you've played in some bands. Are there any recordings out there people can check out of your, of your bass skills? <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> that you'd want people yeah. to find. Well, the band I was in was called The Gorgeous Colors, but it was a few years ago now. So I, there's still stuff online. Yeah. I think I kind of I haven't I haven't oh, looked yeah. in a while. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's I don't know. I, I need to get off. You know, when I when I get off Skype here, I've got to go and check if there's anything really dodgy up there. But, <laughs> I, take it, take it down. Yeah, you, you know, like most bands, we got better as we went along. Yeah, so right. there, there's probably some some uh, some questionable stuff there. Early embarrassing material. Yeah, so you know, check the date maybe. <laughs> uh, uh, that's great. Well, Tim, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us here on uh, episode five. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks, thanks, Dave and Matt. It was uh, yeah, no, it was a uh, pleasure to be the first kind of transatlantic uh, guest on the Concavity. Thanks yeah, for joining us, Tim. Awesome. It was great. We really enjoyed it. Yeah, man, was, really appreciate right. it. Excellent. Great. Thanks so much. So, uh, as usual, our Artwork for our podcast comes from Robin O'Neill. Our intro and outro song is Instant Disassembly by Parquet Courts. And thanks as usual to our listener Jordan Tibbet for the show notes. Uh, Concavity, we are on Twitter and Instagram at Concavity Show. And if you want to get in touch with us by email, we are concavityshow at gmail.com. And if you feel like leaving an iTunes review uh, so that more people can hear and find out about the show through iTunes, we would wildly appreciate that. Thanks again, Tim, and thanks for listening.